Um, I want to jump in this morning basically by a statement, um, and the statement is simply this, and I'll come back to kind of what we're doing. Uh, Typically on Sunday mornings, as a church, we gather, we study God's Word. One of the things that is pretty common for us as a church, it's the norm, in other words, is to take books of the Bible and just teach through them, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and let Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, whoever else, uh, tell their narrative of of God. And, And we as recipients and participants, we respond to that. Um, every once in a while, less common, we take, we take breaks from that and just focus on certain themes and ideas or topics. And that's kind of what we've been doing for the past few weeks. And uh, we're calling this basically a people and a purpose. And it's really just kind of a look at what we're calling our vision and values. Um, and well, I'll show the next slide. Why do we do this? So if you guys have been here for the past several weeks, you've already heard this. If you're new to this, then this will hopefully make some sense to you. Next slide, I'll kind of tell you a little bit why we do this. Uh, it simply boils down to two main reasons. One, so that we can reinforce this collective sense of calling, identity, motivation for us as a local expression of God's people, disciples here on the Central Coast. Um, why do we do what we do? It's kind of the big idea is what we're really trying to understand so that we don't simply fall into the second category, which is uh, the real possibilities of drift. And one of the things that we've been saying every single week is that every one of us, we're like cars that are uh, really out of alignment, that if you take your hand off the wheel for any length of time, you will drift. You will drift into the, the shoulder of the road, and we will oftentimes, that's how our lives oftentimes crash, is, is we take our hands off the wheel. And it's the same as true for being disciples of Jesus, that if we forsake or forget who we are, who God is, what God has done for us, and what we are called to is collectively as a community of people, uh, then we will drift. And we do this on an individual basis all the time. Um, and a lot of times churches can do this on a collective basis. And uh, one of the evidences, I think, that churches as a collective community can be uh, going into the realm of drift is they forget the main purposes of what a church is all about, which kind of leads to the very next slide. I'll kind of make some statements on that, and then I'll get back to the main uh, driving statement that I want to talk about this morning, which is anchored in uh, Matthew's account of what we call the Great Commission. Um, This is a little diagram that we've been trying to kind of put forth to say this helps to kind of identify who we are. At the very center of this diagram is Jesus and the gospel. In other words, the two are one and the same. We believe Jesus is the gospel. Uh, At the very core of who we want to be, who we uh, uh, inspire to be, desire to be, uh, is Jesus and the gospel. And if you've been around church people or Christianity for any length of time, you know that this is not always the case, right? Have you guys ever been around people, individuals, and or churches that at the very core of them is not necessarily Jesus or the gospel? It may be secondary or non-important or topics or ideas or passions or desires, all of which may or may, be, may not be good, but Jesus and the gospel is not the center of it. Um, in other words, there's a lot of times churches can drift into focusing on certain single-stringed instruments where they focus on one note and one note alone. For some churches, it's all about end times teaching and ideas and what's going to happen, speculating and so on and so forth. Other churches that may be just an emphasis upon certain elements of the Holy Spirit, the point, or some churches it might be just an emphasis upon the Bible, and, and all of these things are important. All of them are Bible ideas, but when disjointed from the main storyline of the gospel and Jesus, they become these single string instruments that actually become these points for division. 
It's one of the reasons why sometimes people that are always playing one note can sometimes be the most divisive people you ever talk to. Because their main agenda is not Jesus or the gospel. It's this secondary idea or objective. And so for us as a church, we always want to really try to make sure that we recenter ourselves upon the reality of Jesus and the gospel. Now that then goes out and informs four key areas that we describe or see as far as what makes us as a community. One is worship, our devotion. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. Second is training, what it means to really be a disciple, to learn, to grow, to be learners of Jesus. And then thirdly is community. How do we shape how are we shaped, I should say, as a community of people within community? That's, that's, that's what the gospel does. It reshapes us to be this new society, this new family of people remade in the image of, of Jesus. And finally today, we're going to take a look at the subject or the concept of mission and what that means. And uh, before I jump into that, I just want to simply state that this is, this is an important concept for us, I think, as a church to really identify and understand what do we mean when we talk about the subject or the concept of mission? We'll get to that. That's kind of the main thing that we'll be focusing on here this morning. So I want to start with kind of like a little statement that kind of summarizes everything that I really want to focus on. So next slide um, is really the summary statement. Sorry, it's kind of a pink slide, sorry. I, I chose the font color. My daughter gives me a hard time for it, but that's the color we have. I normally don't like pink. I feel like I need to explain myself. I'm normally a blue guy. But anyways, so here's the big point. The big idea is this, is that every person has a mission in life. Every one of us has something that drives us, that compels us, that moves us, that motivates us. Every one of us. Not one of us here in this room is uh, exempt from this. Every one of us has something. We would call this our mission. And so if you're trying to figure out, like, what is it that drives me? What is the mission of my life? What is the focus? What is it that gives my life meaning or equilibrium or purpose or identity? However you want to describe it, it's all the same thing. You can understand a little bit about what that is by tracing back your understanding of that based upon what is it that you value most. Because what you value most, what you, we would say, what your heart is fixed on, what your heart is focused on, will inevitably begin to reshape the direction, the core of your life. How you live, what you do with your time, your energy, your money, your, your, all of this stuff will somehow be linked to what it is that you truly love and value in life. I mean, you, you, can, you can follow this on all sorts of different levels. Um, that if someone loves power, someone loves power, they will do everything within their power and their ability to somehow gain more power, because power gives their life identity, purpose, and so on and so forth. So at some point, powerful people that love, worship, uh, are addicted to, maybe in therapeutic language we would say, you have an addiction to power. Those people are not the most nice, cuddly, sweet-hearted, tender, dear type of people, because there's hardness about them, because there is no room for expressions that seem like sensitivity or softness and forgiveness and gentleheartedness are the opposite of power and authority. But the point is, we would say this within the biblical context, within the Bible itself, that what we value most, we will pursue with all of our heart, mind, and our lives will take some form of shape of that. So one of the reasons why it goes back to the very first thing that we looked at, which was worship. What you worship matters. What you worship matters. Most of our lives, most of the vices, the problems, the challenges, the addictions, 
uh, the elements that spring forth into your present day life that leave you feeling either embarrassed or broken or messed up or lost, oftentimes can be traced back to what is the object or person that you're worshiping. For all of us, it can always be traced back to that, all the time. So the question is, whatever it is that you value most, worship most, that will then begin to propel you into life in what we would call mission. So before I jump in and begin to read the passage, I want to say one final thing about mission because, uh, actually, I'm going to read the passage and I'll kind of make my statement on this. So let's read Matthew chapter 28. We'll make some comments about this. Uh, my words today are actually going to be a little bit brief because we're going to do things a little bit differently than what we, have, what we typically do. I'm going to talk a little bit about and teach on this Matthew 28 passage. But the real thing out of this is I really kind of want to ask the question, what does this look like on a, on a tangible level? How do we embody this? How do we as a community of people here on the Central Coast trying to be followers and disciples of Jesus, how do we actually live this out? Because, again, I realize the concept of mission or living on a mission can be a little bit ambiguous. I mean, it might sound really good for a Christian to be like, oh, I'm on mission. Like, well, what does that mean then? Like, how do you actually embody that? Does it mean that you're in ministry? Does it mean that you're going to go to Africa? Does it mean that you are going on a weekend trip down to Mexico? What does it mean to be on mission? And that's where I want to try to give some flesh and bone to this so that we'll Will begin to make some sense to you. Because I think when there's ambiguity in this, uh, then what ends up happening is, is it just becomes a term that has lost any form of meaning. And it's a term that needs to have meaning because it's a Bible term, which we'll look at in just a moment here. So let's read Matthew chapter 28. And it's this great, famous passage that's described as the Great Commission. Uh, the word commission, commission, uh, is, comes from two words, with mission. It's Jesus actually giving his followers Mission or purpose or sentness, if you want to use another word. Sentness is derived from Jesus in this context. So let me read it to you. I'll make some statements and I'll kind of come back to this subject of mission, hopefully make some uh, ideas, teaching on this particular element. And then I'll introduce a friend up and we'll talk a little bit with him as to how he embodies this and how he lives this out at a very practical level. And I think it'll be uh, helpful for a lot of us. So it says, the 11 disciples, they went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now, a little bit of backstory. Uh, Jesus had, uh, at the end of his ministry, um, if you are familiar at all with his life story, he uh, promoted uh, the, the kingdom of God. He healed people, taught God's word, and ended up ultimately uh, brutally murdered and then uh, put into a tomb. And yet, the third day, he rose again. Within that time frame, his disciples had become disillusioned. They felt as if this very thing that they had given their lives over to had kind of fallen short. And yet when he rose again from the dead, everything changed. Their entire world was radically turned upside down. They were given a brand new sense of hope, brand new sense of purpose in life. And now they are going to see Jesus uh, taken up or leave or depart. Jesus makes all these promises. So this, this is Jesus' basic final message to his disciples before he departs. It says, in the 11 disciples, they went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Jesus, they worshiped him. And yet some doubted. It's just a little statement here that's kind of fascinating to me because the narrator, the writer of this book, Matthew, um, I love the fact that he just kind of points out these, these little details that sometimes they can be missed. I mean, if you're trying to write a story about heroes and saying, follow these guys, you would not point them out as people that are, have little faith. But that's exactly who these are. So the question is why? Because this is who the people were. Uh, I love how the Bible just kind of reveals people who they are in their rawness. 
and in the various levels of complete trust and confidence in God, as well as areas where they feel weak and broken, and yet they're, tr- they're truly trying to hold on and trust. And that's what it says, even though some of them doubted. And yet Jesus still speaks and addresses. And I love this because it's, what this means is for any of us here. So if you might be someone that is strong in faith, you have big hopes and big trust and confidence in God to do great things, or you are somebody that's barely hanging on by a thread. You are like what the Bible describes as smoking flax or a bruised Read, meaning a stick that has been broken, but not all the way broken. It's just hanging out by a thread or a smoking flax, like a little candle that's barely, barely alive, just by a little tiny, tiny light. Uh, no matter who you are, no matter where you're at, uh, Jesus welcomes you. We're glad you're here. Glad you're here. We're, our hope is that something somehow would fan into flame this sense of confidence in God and bring about healing to your heart and your life. It says, and then Jesus came and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So the subject of mission, this is what we want to look at. Jesus is commissioning. He's giving his disciples the reality of sentinels. Now go is what he's saying. Go and do what I've called you to do, and we'll unpack that in just a moment. Now, when you think about the subject or the word, the phrase mission, I think a lot of times it, this could be like a very churchy word. You don't hear this for the most part, I think, or at least when we think about it. The more you think about it, the more you begin to realize it's kind of a, a broader, even kind of be a secular word. But the idea, when we think about it, I think initially the idea of mission, we might think of missions or going on a missions project. We typically think within the context of church or churchiness. But the reality is, this is not necessarily the case. In fact, um, a lot of Fortune 500 companies have what they typically call a mission statement. So I thought it'd be kind of fun to type in, do a little Google search, kind of figure out what are some of the mission statements of some big companies. And these are the fun ones I came up with. This is a fun little diversion. It's Amazon. It says they are, their mission statement is to be Earth's most customer-centric company where customers can find and discover anything they might want to buy online at the lowest possible prices. Do they do, they do a pretty good job of matching their mission? Yeah? Do a pretty good job, yeah? Um, Disney, all right, this is theirs. 2013, they came out with this one. It says, to be one of the world's leading producers and providers of entertainment and information. Our primary financial goals are to maximize earnings, to allocate capital toward growth initiatives that will drive long-term shareholder value. And then finally, I like this one. Walmart, we, it's just simple. Like, we save money so they can live, live better. I'm not, I'm not absolutely positive about the very last phrase in there, so they can live better. I, I've, I've seen the Instagram account called People of Walmart. It's, I'm not entirely convinced that, that people are actually living better based upon Walmart producing and providing for them. But the point of the matter is this, is that these are mission statements. These are stated uh, uh, desires or aims or goals of these companies. So here's, here's a big idea I want to point out. The subject or the idea of mission is not foreign to our culture at large. Uh, again, I go back to my original statement. Every one of us in this room have some mission. We are living for something. We have purpose. Our life has to have something that gives us purpose and motivation. Um, and again, it's always linked to value. What you value will then inform and transform whatever that mission stated mission is. So, for example, let's just do a little bit of an object lesson here. What, what are the, let's go back to the, uh, the mission statements of those companies. What, what are the stated values that drives and forms the mission statements? In each one of these, it's all the same. It's people, customers, 
It's the customer base is what, what informs and transforms what they do. So to these companies, the greatest value for them are our customers. Without customers, you don't have Amazon. Without customers, you don't have Walmart. Without customers, you don't have the happiest place on earth. You need customers. And so the same thing is true for all of our lives. What are the great values in your life that you give yourself to, you give your mind to, you think about, you dream about, you give money towards? And if those things were not there, you would look at your life and think, I don't have value. Because whatever those things are uh, will then transform how you live with a sense of purpose or mission. Okay? You guys following so far? You guys doing good? You guys okay? Both of you? All right, let's jump in and take a look at this, because I want to look at just three things about the passage. Matthew chapter 28, we'll just take a look at three specific things, because I think um, what we're going to see, next slide, is that really within the idea of mission, mission involves at least these three things. Again, I'll just kind of keep this brief. First of all, mission involves this rightly ordered sense of authority, a rightly ordered sense of authority. Again, Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, Go. In other words, because, Jesus is saying, because I am the author, that's where we get the word authority from, because I have the power to script, to narrate, to storyboard you into existence, therefore, go. So the question that we have to wrestle with and ask, who has the authority in your life to script, to narrate, to inform, to edit, to challenge, to rebuke? To question you, who has that authority? So here's the thing. Every one of us has something that we give ourselves to. Every one of us. Authority is not, don't think of authority in terms of some authority figure. I mean, look, PepsiCo can have authority over our lives because we, they, 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 we've given authority over We've allowed them to have authority over our lives. When they say, drink this drink, we're like, ah, drink this drink, and I, my life will be better. We are giving ourselves to whatever narrative they have scripted for us. Never, never really thought of it that way, but that is the fact. That authority in this biblical context is the Greek word exousia, and it's translated a lot of different ways. But here's the idea that it kind of conveys. Privilege, capacity, uh, competency. One of the words I like is at the very end is the idea of authorship. In other words, the authorship is this, whoever has the ability to write out the storyline. So who has the authority to write out the storyline for your life, to script it, to narrate it? See, this, this kind of runs into the problem that you and I have as human beings. Because most of us, we actually think that we are the ones writing and scripting our own lives. The, the problem with that is we're not always, we, we don't have as much power as we think we have. Because we don't always have the power to write out cancer. I don't want that in there. Loss of job. I don't want that in there. Poverty. I'm going to write that out or erase it out or edit. We don't have power over some of those things. They're just there. They're part of that script, part of that narrative. And we, when, when, we, when we are confronted by extreme challenges, we begin to realize how powerless we really truly are. Does it make sense of this? So it always goes back to who do we give authority to our lives. Now, in the Bible, it, it describes this concept of whoever we give ourselves to, that's, and we allow them to influence, to inform, to author, to script, to narrate, however you want to describe it, our lives. That's who has the, the supreme authority. Um, I was reading a book this past week, and the author kind of made this statement. He says, power, uh, sex, 
and what do you say? Power, sex, and money are, are, are great servants, but horrible masters. Power, sex, and money are great servants, but horrible masters. So just pause and think about that for a moment. Power, sex, and money are, are big, titanic gods in our culture, right? They're, they literally, you can even make an argument and say, they are the, the gods that rule America. A sense of power. We need power. We need might. We need to exercise our mightiness. Um, uh, sex is, is, I mean, we live in the most insanely sex, highly sexualized culture. Everything is about sex. And, and then money. Like, we, if, if we don't have money, we wish we had money. We do what we can to somehow get money. There is this overwhelming sense of power that is given to these things. And they make great servants. When you are free to actually treat money, sex, and power as your servant, where you can use them as means to bring blessing and life to other people, that's good. You're actually using these things in a way that's good, and it's the way in which the creator God intended for them to be. But when they become powerful over your life, when you are a servant to these things, they become horrible masters over you. You are, the way the Bible describes it, you are a slave to these things. You are a slave to money, a slave, we call that deadness, a slave to pornography or sex, we call that perversion, or slave to power. I'm not even sure what you call that, but weakness, whatever. But the point of the matter is, is all of these things are great servants, but horrible masters. It's the idea of authority. Who do we give authority to? And this is where the Bible always, the gospel always brings us back to saying Jesus on the cross did something to challenge, to append, to turn over, to confront these powerful gods and demagogues to somehow set us free. And this is what we see is that the idea of mission, first of all, always goes back to who has the authority in our, in our lives, the stated Authority. And again, it always kind of goes back to value. Who do we truly value above and beyond all other things? So we see, first of all, this concept of authority. Uh, second thing that we kind of point out is in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, we also see this kind of reimagined sense of vocation, this reimagined sense of vocation. Now, to understand this, I'll read this in a, pa- in a passage in a minute. At the very beginning, when God created Adam and Eve, God created them to, and then he gave them, Authority. So what you have in the garden is the author of life creating all things. It was all good. He makes his declaration over it says it's all good. And then he creates Adam and Eve as kind of vice regents with him to say, I'm giving it's all to you. I created it, it's mine, but all belongs to me, but I'm giving it to you. I'm sharing with you. Now now go be fruitful, multiply, and go cultivate the earth and make beauty out of it. God called Adam and Eve to be these vice regents with him. But here's what happened, happened with Adam and Eve. Rather than partnering with the creator in love and worshiping God and cultivating this earth, Adam and Eve gave into doubt and disbelief in God. They, the serpent comes and begins to question, does God ultimately have your best interest in mind? Or can God and should God really be trusted? Adam and Eve they fouled on that. They disbelieved. And as a result of that uh, came what we would describe as, as sin and brokenness entered into this world. Uh, predominantly through what we would describe as idolatry. Rather than trusting God, they basically handed over all creation to broken desires and sinfulness and disbelief. And this is the world in which we live in today. 
rather than partnering with the creator to make good, to bring beauty, we live in a world that is filled with brokenness and evil and sin and death. And what we have on the cross is Jesus coming to undo all that. So for us to really understand this, what Jesus is saying is that I, I, I'm, I'm sending you out as new co-regents, new partners in a whole new reimagined way. I'm sending you out with a renewed sense, a reimagined understanding of vocation. So this is what Jesus does on the cross. By rescuing us, by setting us free, by bringing us into his family, then sending us out as people that bear his image to then go forth as these co-regents. This is one of the reasons why at the end of time when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and all the writers of the New Testament, they write about how one day we will co-reign with Christ. That's the idea here. It's basically seeing our vocation, the vocation of being image bearers of God, being reimagined. So listen to how he describes this. I was just going to read this out of the message. It's a great little way in which he describes this. If you want the ESV, it's right up there. The message says this. Go out and train everyone you meet, far and near, in this way of life, making or marking them by baptism in the threefold name, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then instruct them in the practice of all that I've commanded you. What Jesus is saying is I'm sending you out to go forth and to make this message, this gospel, this good news, known. I haven't abandoned people. I haven't turned my back on them. In fact, I have done something so profoundly good on their behalf. Go announce that to everybody. And he adds two really important instructions. He says, one, to uh, initiate. The idea of baptism is, is initiate. It's a concept of bringing someone into this, this life, this family, this understanding. Um, and then ultimately to instruct, to instruct them to follow all that I've commanded them. I think the idea is that to instruct and to initiate all in this new way of life that God has opened up to them through Jesus is the big idea. That we're all called to this. Now, here's a point that I think I need to kind of demystify. Because I think within the Christian circles, we tend to think in terms of like this. When we talk about mission, we talk about either a missionary who, like I mentioned earlier, goes across an ocean into another country, into some area that's very remote, or they go to Mexico on a missions trip on the weekend, or they're somebody that's like paid by a church and they do like church stuff, kind of like me. I get, you know, that's, that's my vocation. We would call that vocation. I'm in vocational ministry. And so we typically think in terms of like this, like the, the one that gets to get a paycheck from the church, they're the one who's doing ministry stuff. But the rest of us, we're just trying to slug it through life, you know, asking people if they need paper or plastic. I don't know if it is plastic around here in Central Coast anymore. Um, or just somehow making our way through life, somehow having to endure with a horrible boss and make money from a secondary job that we dislike, making money that we really desperately want to buy things that we really don't even need to impress people that we really don't even like. At the end of the day, it's just like we're just doing our best to somehow make it to church. But the point of the matter is we've lost our sense of vocation. That what Jesus does is he brings all people that trust him into this hope of salvation. When we think of salvation as just being something that you get the moment you die, like this post mortem experience, we've taken this vast gospel, this vast announcement of good news, and we've shrunken it down and narrowed it down to something that is hardly recognizable in the New Testament. In fact, the hope of the gospel is far more beautiful, far more expanded than just simply those versions that we oftentimes get. 
The hope of the gospel is God has come to rescue not only you from sin, to rescue you from consequences of our own defiance and brokenness, but then to bring us into a family and a relationship whereby now, in God's power, we get to live out and embody his presence in the world all around us. So whether or not you get a paycheck from the church or you're a missionary in another country or you work for Apple or you work for the local grocery store or you are you know, a custodian at a school, we all are called to bear forth the image of our creator. And this is what we mean by vocation reimagined. So to catch a glimpse of that, To be able to see that, to understand that no matter where you're at, no matter who you are, the same Holy Spirit, if you are a follower of Jesus, is living inside you so that you are a light wherever you're at. And that's what we mean by mission. So let me wrap this up and we'll move on to the final thing. And I want to look at the final idea, which is the concept of the hope of reward. The hope of reward. Matthew chapter 28, verse 20 says, Behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And... uh, Jesus makes his promise. He says, look, I'm with you. I'm not, I'm not going to abandon you. And I'm with you all the way to the end. And, and in the end, you will be a part of this brand new world which I'm launching, I'm birthing, I'm bringing forth in its most vibrant beauty. You will be part of that is the promise that Jesus makes. The last passage, I'm going to read this to you. It's out of the message again. Um, and someone actually informed me that that's not the right passage. So Matthew 19, 27, verse through 30 is not the right one. So if anybody knows what this is, you can speak up and tell me what it is. But this is not it. So, uh, but that passage actually does exist, but it's just not with that same address. You guys following? So I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it. And you can just listen to it at least. Uh, even though the address is wrong, that passage still is in the Bible. Just listen to it. It says, Then Peter asked, We left everything and we followed you. What do we get out of it? And then Jesus replied, Yes, you have followed me. And in the recreation of the world, when the Son of Man will rule gloriously, you who have followed me will also rule, starting with the 12 tribes of Israel. But not only you, but anyone who sacrifices home, family, field, whatever, because of me. Emphasis, because of me. Not just random, arbitrary, ambiguous sacrifices, but sacrifices because of Christ, because of the King. He says, he goes on, because of me, you will get back a hundred times over, not to mention the considerable bonus of eternal life. This is the great reversal. Many of the first will end up, will be ending up last, and the last will be first. This is Jesus' way of saying, look, there is great reward to come. Every mission that anybody is ever on, whether it be a Fortune 500 company, they start with this idea of what is our win? What do we hope for? What do we hope to get out of this? What do we hope to get out of this for our shareholders? It's all the same thing. It's this hope of reward. It's the idea of incentivizing. That our incentive as followers of Jesus ultimately is him. Like he is our great reward. Christ Jesus, not just simply heaven or some notion or some idea or some concept, but Christ is our exceedingly great reward. It's in the form of a person and the relationship and all that comes along with that to the point where oftentimes many of us, we wrestle with a sense of belonging. Who am I and who will accept me and who will affirm me? Here's the beauty of the gospel is that God will. He will accept you. He will love you. He will transform you. Come to him. 
And this is the beauty of what Jesus says, is that this is what will drive our mission, is that this exceedingly great reality of reward, that I will be with you all the way through the end of the ages, all the way to the end of the time, you will be with me. That's a great hope. It's what drives us. So with that, again, to summarize, all of us have some form of mission or purpose that drives us. And all of that mission is linked to what you love and what you value most in your life. And what you value, what you love most in your life can oftentimes be traced back to how you spend your money, how you invest your time, how you invest your energy. All of that will somehow come together and begin to become like signposts that point to what you are being driven by in this life. Some of those things will lead to great brokenness. In fact, anything other than Christ will always lead to great brokenness. Some things spoil faster than others. Some things based upon artificial content, last longer than others, right? But at some point, everything that is not God will spoil, will be prone to spoilage. And when it spoils, unless you are rescued from it, you will end up spoiling with it. This is what Christ means, that you will lose yourself unless you find and discover what I've called you to. So the gospel is always an invitation to trust God, to take God, to receive what God has offered and it's what we see Jesus doing. He's, he's commissioning. He's calling. So what I want to finish with is this idea. Because all mission involves a rightly ordered sense of authority who scripts, who has the ability to uh, narrate and to edit and to create my life and to storyboard it to make some form of sense. Secondly, it has a sense of renewed or reimagined sense of vocation. What am I doing? What am I called to? How am I... And how can I take what I'm called to to maximize it in a way that makes much of God? And finally, this great hope of reward. What drives or motivates my sense of who I am and why do I do and what do I do in my life today? So the big question that I want to ask, and we'll wrap it up with this, is how do we do this? How do we do this? What are some tangible examples of how we do this? So right now I'm going to have my good friend Cameron Ingalls coming up, and I'll have him introduce himself. So here we go. Why don't we give him a nice round of applause? So the reason why I want to have Cameron come on up is, again, uh, a few months ago when I was kind of thinking about, like, how do I want to do this? Um, and originally I thought about having, like, this panel of people and kind of having them share. Because um, we've got a lot of people, I think, in our church that get this and do it well. They live it well. They, they have a deep sense of vocation. They have a deep sense of living on mission. So I, I guess I would just say congratulations. We, we have, I'm super stoked on the many people in our church that are doing this really well. Um, uh, the reason why I asked Cam is, is a good friend of mine, and he's been a part of the church for a long time, and I think he does this really well. Part of the reason why is I see people that have known him for a long time. They're blessed by his life and his ministry and what he does. So I'm going to let Cameron tell you a little bit about who he is and what he does by way of vocation and how this kind of plays into this larger theme of how do we live on mission for the gospel. Because let me say one final thing. Um, Several years ago, I came across this statistic, and, and it struck me that if we are just simply trying to train people up for, quote-unquote, vocational ministry, that's maybe between 3 to 5%. So what that means is that 3 to 5% of everybody in this room may at some point either go out and be a missionary or get a job at a church. What that means is that if we just focus on trying to train people to go get a job in ministry, then what about the 95 to 97% that don't? 
And what we want to do is we want to be strategic and say, look, out of 95, 97% that are never going to get a job at a church, we are all called to serve Christ in a way that makes much of Jesus, no matter where we're at. So this is kind of the idea. So I'm going to let Cameron tell you a little bit about who he is and what he does and have, share some thoughts as to what we've been talking about. Yeah. So. Hi, guys. I'm Cameron Ingalls. It's good to meet you all. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, uh, I live here in San Luis Obispo. I grew up in the area. I uh, went to Cuesta College uh, a couple years after that. Worked at a f- foster care agency in town called Family Care Network. And, um, and now I'm a, a photographer. I photograph weddings. I've been doing that for 14 years. And in that time, I've started a second business called The Wedding Standard. And I, I'm really busy. I do a lot of work all the time. Um, yeah, that's, and that's, a, that's the intro. <laughs> Is that good? That's good. <laughs> So tell us a little bit about, like, how, obviously, as working in the typical marketplace and as, as being a follower of Jesus, how do, you, how do you do keep those things in tension? Or do you completely compartmentalize them? When you're on the job, do you completely distance yourself from any type of being a Christian or living on a mission? Or how do you, how do, you do that? Yeah, so uh, there's a verse that says we are um, co-creators with Christ. No, wait, let me just read it because I... Uh can't remember anything when I'm staring at you. <laughs> um, uh, Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And uh, in my business, in my life, in the way I, way I serve people, I, I see myself as partnering with Christ and working with him to bring kingdom principles and kingdom living into the, peop- into the relationships, the people I serve, you know, the brides and grooms, the people I'm working with, the florists and the venues. Um, you know, the other day I just I, I was talking to a bride right before I was supposed to shoot her pictures. It's just me and her alone, and she starts telling me she's stressed out and crying. And and you know, I was able to give her encouraging words and speak life into her and encourage her that you know that this little stress that you're feeling is going to pass, and you need to just focus in. You know, so I have these little moments all the time where I'm able to work with God to bring peace, to bring life, to bring love. Um, through my occupation to, uh, with a standard of excellence and passion that I have. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the idea of standard of excellence. We didn't talk about this first service. Yeah. But why, why is having a high standard of excellence something that's boring? Is it, I mean, I, I would imagine in some cases having a high standard of excellence is really good because it means it maximizes your business and makes you richer, whatever. Mm-hmm. But are there other incentives that we can have that have a high standard of excellence? That Yeah, I got, a, I got a verse for that too. Cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> How's it writing all these notes? Uh, it says, uh, Matthew five fourteen. you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And uh, we, as believers in Jesus, you know, as we're inhabitants of the God of this universe, we are exuding a light and when we do good work, when we're, we're doing good, the good works that we were created to do in excellence, people see that and they go, they take note of it and they say, wow, wow, that's amazing. Um, and, and instead of glorifying us, they, they feel like there's something bigger at play. And I mean, I've had conversations with people and, and they've said, what, what is it about your photography? I feel something when I see it. I, I see something different in it. And it's because they're seeing like the Holy Spirit living through me and operating through me to get the work that I do. You know what I mean? Is that yeah, that's good. succinct enough? 
Yeah, it's really good. Okay. So what, what would be some advice that you would have to maybe share, speak to people, for example, that might be in a job that they just feel is a dead-end job, and it's just it's nothing more than a means to make money, to pay bills, to kind of live within a system of that's really broken and messed up. Um, how, speak to that person that's really wrestling with that so that somehow life can fill in those places of death and frustration and brokenness and anxiety. What would you yeah. say to someone like that? So, like, when, when I was a young man, I, I, I really believed that I was supposed to live on mission. And, I, I, you know, I would hear sermons, like, uh, at youth group and church, and I'd go on mission trips, and I felt like I was supposed to give my life to God. And, and I, I grew up wanting to serve Him, and I thought that meant working for the church. I thought that meant being a missionary or, or leading worship. And so when God called me to become a wedding photographer on one awesome, fateful day and, uh, 14 years ago, I, I had this reckoning. I had to like wrestle with, wait, how do I, how do, I do that when I'm, when, I, when I'm not in ministry? And, and he showed me that, that my primary calling, as I examined uh, all the stuff that Jesus said to the disciples, and I read Keith Green's autobiography, and I just spent some time really soul-searching and asking the Holy Spirit, what if, what's my calling in life? What's my purpose? And I, I came down to the most simple one, the most simple answer is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And it doesn't say when you go to work or when you find your jo- dream job or when you get your degree at Cal Poly and then you go into the workforce, then you will, you know, it's just simple. Love God and love your neighbor. And you can do that in any place, in any workplace. When you walk into a building, you're bringing the Holy Spirit. You're bringing life in with you. And you're we have this secret weapon of the most the wisdom of the ages inside of us, and we can partner with him when we're hitting these obstacles. So if you're in this vocation and you're like, oh, I just am doing this dumb job that I have to do, it, you need to turn your heart towards, God, how do I love you, and how do I love my neighbor, and how do I do good work so that people will glorify you as a result and people will see you in me? Cool? It's good. All right. It's good. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Appreciate it. Cool. Let's give Cameron a round of applause. So in closing, I think the idea that we want to really just convey is it's not about being in ministry that gives us a sense of sentness. It's about being in Christ that gives us a sense of sentness. That if you are a follower of Jesus, we are, we are sent into this world with and empowerment, the Holy Spirit, to enable us to be people that can make much of Jesus. That's the idea of vocation restored and renewed. And this is what God calls us to. The final thing I want to just emphasize is that our sense of sentness actually comes from and is inherited by a God who is all about mission. This is a great passage. I didn't want to finish with this thought, is to just consider this concept in the book of John chapter twenty. Um, I think we have it up here. It says this, and before I read this, it's the last part of Jesus' life. This is actually a famous uh, painting from a guy by the name Caravaggio, and uh, it's one of my favorite paintings, actually. If you look at it, it's, just, it's something about Thomas. I can't remember what the name of it is, but um, this is Thomas, and he's, he's doubting Jesus as to whether or not he actually rose again from the dead. It's the passage when Jesus says, touch me and feel and know that it's truly me, and it's within that passage that this is where the scripture comes out of, John chapter 20. Um, Jesus then, it says, and he spoke, 
and he showed them wounds in his hands and his side, and they were filled with joy. So, so what, I, what I envision happening in this particular context, Jesus is talking, he's instructing his followers, he's resurrected from the dead, he's having kind of this post-resurrection um, dialogue and conversation with these guys. Some of them are still disbelieving. I would imagine, obviously, Thomas was one of those guys that was like, I'm still not even sure if he's really alive. Is it really him? And Jesus then has this dialogue and says that while he's talking with them, he's also making these gestures. Uh, the gestures that he's making are to his side and to his hands. And then it says, as he was doing this, they were filled with this deep sense of joy. And then he says, again, I said to, he said to them, peace be with you as the Father. There's a big passage I want you to latch on to. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. So in other words, our sense of vocation and sentness, that's a word, is actually derived from the sentness of Jesus from the Father. So the big idea that I want you to walk away from and at least hold on to and think about and consider is that we have a God that is a missionary God, meaning he doesn't abandon things that are broken. He doesn't abandon things that are vandalized or left in states of ruin. He's a God that actually throws himself in the most profound way to see about their restoration, their healing, their reordering. And to what degree does he do that? And this is the beautiful thing. To the degree that we see Jesus as the embodiment, the fulfillment of all of the heart of God, to the degree that you see that Jesus was sent for you to rescue you, to save you, to redeem you, to wash you, to cleanse you, to receive you, to accept you, to transform you, to the degree that you see that, that will realign your heart with his authority to where you can say, Jesus, you have all authority to script my life in any way that makes sense to you. It might not make sense to me. And if you follow Jesus for any length of time, you know there's a lot of times what Jesus scripts into our lives that does not make sense. You may be in that status right now. But that's what authority is. It's saying, Jesus, you have the authority to script my life anyway. And then it's about reimagining what it means to be people of vocation, people that embody the gospel, people that are light and salt in this dark world, and ultimately being radically motivated by the sense of reward, that we will be given the sense of relationship, of all relationships, that our hearts long for and drive for, and oftentimes do silly things just to somehow settle for relationships in this world that are always prone to spoilage. It's a gift that God gives us of himself. The gospel is always his invitation. It's always this way of saying, come, receive from me what I give to you. And this is where I want to finish. We're going to respond. We're going to sing. I'm going to have the worship team come on up. We're going to sing a few songs. So how about we all stand and we'll respond. We have communion that will be in the front. It's a way of eating the bread and drinking the cup and being reminded that... The way to finding wholeness in our lives, the being put back together again, is through the broken bread, the brokenness of Jesus. Jesus comes in this world not as a teacher or a sage or a religious leader primarily, but as a human living out the vocation of God in the most profoundly beautiful way. Because when I think we would all agree, when you look at Jesus, he, is, he exemplifies the beauty of God. You look at Jesus and you're like blown away by his beauty because everything Jesus did was good and beautiful. 
He fully embodied the vocation of God. He fully represented what it looks like to be fully human. And he does that for us. And he was put to death. He was broken. So that we who are broken can be put back together again, be made whole, be received. So we're going to sing, partake of communion. What I want to do is I want to let you guys know that I want to, I want to have some moment just to minister and to pray for you guys. Because some of us right now, you're really wrestling with this. You're thinking like, who am I? What is the idea of sentness in my life? And you're wrestling with it. I mean, you may be in a dead-end job and you feel frustrated and upset. And rather than, than taking those frustrations back to God and asking him, you're just you're, you're turning that frustration into ways by which you're just trying to appease all that and to drown it out through drugs, alcohol, other, other, other forms of synthetic means. And that just compounds the brokenness in your life, compounds the brokenness in your family and your relationship that you have. In other words, they are, they are unhealthy alternatives that are destroying you. And we have a God that wants to heal. Thank you.